Hi, and thanks for downloading or streaming the Playing at Parenting podcast. It's great to have you here listening today. Today, we've got an absolutely fabulous guest, Alana Robinson. Uh, She is a parenting coach and she has a wealth of background knowledge and experience. So we definitely get geeky on this call. Uh, There is... um, lots of discussion and lots of concepts discussed that you might not be familiar with some of them you will and so do check the show notes out for today's episode because I have tried to cram as much into there as I can um, as ways for you to find out the information that we're talking about and don't forget to check out the web page for more information about the courses and classes that I've got coming up as well as the Facebook group keep calm and educate. I do have a break coming up over the summer so do make sure you get in before that summer break. Hi Alana, welcome to Playing at Parenting. I would love it if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself, your parenting journey and how you got into what you do now. Absolutely, so I'm a parenting coach. I've been a parenting coach for about six years now. Before that I was an early interventionist for kids who have special needs. And um, I got into that because while I was in university, I was a nanny for a family that was an American family living in Canada. And um, because of that, they didn't have access to our health system. And so they had two little boys who have autism and mom was doing all of their therapy at home. And I was kind of brought on to be a second set of hands. And I had never met a child with any kind of exceptionality, let alone autism before taking that job and I very quickly became hooked (laughs) and it totally rocked my world they did a kind of therapy called RDI which is basically breaking down how children typical children learn certain things that they seem to just pick up by osmosis Um, and so I was completely fascinated with this it changed my complete perspective on everything that I thought I knew about how kids worked and parents worked and all of that. Um, And after just six months of working with them, I switched my major at school. I changed my entire career path. (laughs) And um, so I lived with them while I did my first degree and then I graduated. They went back to the States. My husband's in the Canadian forces and we moved to Alberta which has a very robust early intervention system. And I very quickly got a job as an early interventionist there. And I did that for almost 10 years while I was in school and while I was doing it full time. And then I got pregnant with my oldest and unfortunately working with kids all day and then having your own baby at home is very, very taxing. So. Um, at that point, I moved into a parent coaching role, which, because it was more remote, was a lot more um, manageable for me. And now I've been doing this for six and a half years. And I'm very fortunate I get to work with parents all over the world who have kids that are falling into what I call the gap. So their kids, either their behavior is so escalated that they don't personally feel they have the resources to manage it anymore, but they don't qualify for a diagnosis. So there's really no support available or their child does have a diagnosis, but they're not quote unquote disabled enough to qualify for services. So yeah, that's what I've been doing for the last 15 years. (laughs) I love that you, you realized that working with children at that time in your life was was taking away from your joy of being a parent 
yeah. um, because a lot of people don't necessarily connect the two. They just think parenting is just so hard. And that's why. Um, so. I had, I was very lucky that I got to spend a good chunk of my early adulthood parenting other people's kids. And so when I finally had my own my husband and I joke that my kids are my eighth and ninth children because I had so many children that I was in charge of and in care positions for over the years that it wasn't my first rodeo, so to speak. And I very quickly realized that I could not give as much energy to my own children as I could to other people's kids if I was with kids literally 24 seven. Um, giving them back at the end of the day was very helpful. So yeah, it was, but it was a good thing too, because it also helped give me the perspective of, oh, this is why parents are struggling as much as they are. And so that, that mesh was really fortuitous. Yeah. And I imagine, especially working with the kinds of parents that you now special kind of specialize in, mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm guessing that that's even more so because that there are more, uh, so we had in the in our episode that went on air last week um, we were talking to Gary who is an autism dad and um his whole his whole philosophy around he's a so he's a fitness instruct fitness coach and yeah. his whole philosophy around uh, parents of autism children need more energy than an average parent um because they have to do more and they have to do and and also the children need more energy more um movement and things and and, and depending on what their triggers are and things and it was fascinating talking to him um about the fact that like stretching for two minutes in his it, it gives him the energy and when he learned that it was a massive switch light bulb moment for him because it is really tiring being an autism dad was yeah. you know the, the where the discussion was kind of going and if you're in the period that you're talking about where they're they're undiagnosed and um certainly in this country we we have a massive massive waiting lists and diagnoses are taking a long time um and it might be that everybody around them knows exactly what's wrong with them everybody around them knows why their behavior is as it is and why but they're not able to access that support yet because they haven't got that crucial diagnosis yeah yeah and it's I don't know about there but here um, in North America it's very common for a child to get a diagnosis finally and you're like finally they have the diagnosis and then they go oh but their their behavior isn't actually bad enough that they qualify for services and then you have this child who you know has autism or ADHD, and you're basically told, figure it out. And a lot of parents are like, well, if I knew, if I knew what to do, I'd be doing it. Right. And it's the same thing with completely typical kids whose behavior is really escalated. They go see their doctor, they go see a therapist, and they're like, well, there's nothing wrong with them. You just need to parent better. Yeah. What does that mean? Because if I knew what that meant, I'd be doing it already. And it's, that's why I loved parent coaching when I got into it, because the more that I worked with the parents and the more I saw the parents understand why their children behave the way they do, the neuroscience behind it, the less personal they took it, the less energy they were expending on trying to figure out stuff that made absolutely no sense to them 
once they understood the behavior, parenting got so much easier for them. And as a result, the kids made way bigger gains way faster because it wasn't like you go and do therapy for an hour and then you're done for the week. Therapy and behavior intervention just becomes kind of part of your life. It changes how you approach your child, which means that you've now structured your family in a way that allows your child to play to their strengths and build their weaknesses. I think that's it's so important, isn't it? And I mean, you know, we, on, on the workshops that I run, neuroscience and psychology are a big part of what we talk about from birth all the way through and the unrealistic expectations that society puts on both babies, toddlers and parents um, and, and the changes in society that have, have kind of made it feel like that. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's fascinating. Like I know when I started to understand, I mean, and I only know scratch the surface kind of amount of information on how how the human brain works but it is fascinating seeing like like the light bulb moments that you have when you learn this and when I so my kind of background is that I I trained I trained with the company that I learned with if that makes sense so when my when Benjamin was a baby I did some workshops and they changed the way I was going to parent and they they gave me the confidence to parent the way I wanted and to do the things I kind of knew I wanted to do but didn't know why I wanted to do them because they felt natural and they felt right and they felt intuitive and compassionate which is who I am as a person Mm -hmm. um and then when I went on the on the workshop I remember coming out of it thinking well absolutely nothing that has been said today should have blown my mind because everything has just affirmed pretty much what I already knew except for a couple of specific things around specific issues that I have but my mind was still blown by it and so then when I had the opportunity to do the trait to to become a trainer it was like of course I'm going to do that training because I only knew that much and now I know this much but the more you know the more you know you don't know um my husband's always talking about the um the curve the bell curve of you know you think you know a lot when you don't know anything. And then when you start to learn a bit more, you go, no, no. Oh, there's a lot more. There's a lot going on here. Yeah. And that's, that's what I love about working with parents is because they don't know what they don't know. And that's a really hard place to be in when you know something's wrong or you know something isn't going the way that it ought to. But you don't know why. And you can't, you have no idea where to start. And a lot of my clients are in that space when they come to me and they're like, I've read the blogs. I've been surfing Instagram. I follow every parenting guru on there. I've been on Pinterest. I've read all the blogs. I've been reading peer reviewed research, but I have no idea what that fuck it means. (laughs) And, And And it's so amazing to be able to break that down for them and be like, okay, so this is where we're going to put the stick in the spokes of this hamster wheel of doom. And then everything's going to build off of that. And seeing them really truly understand their kids and the connection and the trust that builds there. And that's why I love, I'm an early childhood educator by trade. And I love being able to do that when they're in that two to six year old time frame, because 
I know that those skills that they're building now are going to follow them through straight to adulthood. And you really get to kind of, I just love crawling into a kid's brain and being like, what is going on with you? <laughs> yeah. I, I think, um, I think that's the thing, isn't it? That we, so one of the things that we do, I do a lot is trying to help the parents to look at their kid's brain effectively. So I don't have the childhood background. So my, my focus is more on the parents really. And which is part of why I don't call myself a coach because I'm, I'm not there to, to kind of tell them stuff I'm there to give them information and to ask them lots and lots of questions because the more questions you ask them the more you find out and I think it's it's fascinating because you'll speak to people and they'll be adamant that the problem is x Mm -hmm. and and especially when when you talk about things like food when you talk about food the -hmm. problem is the child this child will not eat whatever it is that they're particularly worried about, or this child only only wants to eat every few hours or whatever it is. And actually the problem is the, when you when you look when you're able to look at it from outside. Yeah, that the problem is the parents. Yeah. Because well, actually always is, no matter what, yeah. whether it's behavior, food, like um I was working with a client recently and dad was like, sure that this kid's problem, he was a defiant child and he was trying to piss him off. Like that was the attitude that they came in with. And after talking for a little bit, I was like, okay, so you're right. There is something going on with your son. He's extremely dysregulated, but these are the conditions that are causing that dysregulation. And he was like, so I'm the problem. Not to put too fine a point on it, yes. <laughs> yeah, but, the, but it's like you say, though, they're, they're the problem because they don't know. Right, it's they not, don't know what to do. So, it's not that they're being malicious no. in any way, shape, or form. It's just that there's this, um, I don't know if you're familiar with Dr. Stuart Shanker, but he's kind of the world's leading expert on self-regulation. And luckily for me, he's very local to me. He's only about two hours away. So... Um, I've learned a lot from him and he talks a lot about the telos of achievement and how like going back to Watson, like Victorian era childhood theories of, you know, you want to be the engineer, you want to be the railroad engineer because that will guarantee your safety and, you know, financially, physically, emotionally, all of it. And so this 200 year old paradigm of we need to push you and toughen you up in order for you to reach the highest achievement so that you are safe. And the current research that came out between you know, mid eighties to now that is finally trickling down into the mainstream of we now realize that you know, being the Elon Musk of the world is not the only way to be safe. We don't live in that world anymore. And it's not about toughening people up and pushing them to achieve the most, climbing the ladder. It's about making sure that they are feeling safe, 
regulated and calm, because if you're those three things, then you can be the best version of yourself, whatever that might look like. And there are so many ways in our world right now that you can achieve great things. There's no, it's not 200 years ago where there was like the railroad engineer and the aristocracy and everybody below them. There's so many ways to be your best self, but the only way to be your best self is if you're calm, regulated and safe. <laughs> yeah. And I think obviously you're working with a group of people where um, executive function and therefore dysregulation are amongst their most challenging issues. So um, I, I'm going through the pro, I'm probably ADHD. I'm going through the diagnosis now. And at some point in, I don't know, 2025, maybe I'll have a diagnosis. Um, but it's very, very slow over here at the moment. Um, but that that dysregulation it can't be taught to somebody by creating more dysregulation exactly and most of the common parenting theory from basically anything before 2000 really seems to be all going down the you have to set boundaries and therefore the naughty step and all of those things yeah, it's all that watson you know yep. we're going to toughen them up we've got yep. to be very firm and um and don't get me wrong boundaries are important <laughs> boundaries very important make children feel safe but there is a method to how you set boundaries and which boundaries you choose to set that makes a huge difference. There's a, I'm constantly talking to my clients, especially parents and dads in particular, who are very um, authoritarian in their own personal history, um, where, you know, we're, we're talking <laughs> and they're like, well, I can't just let them do whatever they want to do. Or I'll tell them how to set a boundary. And they'll be like, but I've already set that boundary. And I'm like, okay, there's, Context is very important here. You can set the exact same boundary. And if you do it one way, it will feel like an attack. If you do it another, it will be collaborative and feel safe. And that shift in how we present that information makes all the difference in the world to how the brain processes that information. And I talk a lot about the triune brain and those three layers. Yeah. And how that top player literally gets deprived of oxygen and blood when we don't feel safe because it's not actually necessary to keep us alive. And our brain in its most primitive form is there to keep our body moving. That's it. It all of that like knowledge and language and reason and executive functions and all, that's all cool, but it's not keeping us alive. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that knowledge of, okay, well, you know, if they, if you present information in a way that makes somebody feel attacked, then they literally cannot process it. Whereas if you present information in a way that makes someone feel safe, it's the same information. <laughs> it's the same outcome. It's the same boundary. That's going to get processed and learned from and put into action. And that's where, as you said, the parents really have that power. Yeah. But without that knowledge of how it works, 
they're like, yeah. I'm doing what you told me to do. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I think that's the thing, isn't it? That like we, we've built a society based on, and, and the Victorians have got a lot to answer for because we've built this yes. society based on the Victorians. And to think that we haven't as a society moved on for on, basically since the Victorians, until the last decade, two decades at most, it's quite shocking really, isn't it? To think that all of the way that we have been treating psychology, especially psychology of children, but psychology of, of the, the structure of society is all based on... Nice. Yeah, <laughs> everything. Right? And it's, we've done, I say to parents often, we've had more child development research and discoveries in the last 50 years than we did in the 500 before. And it takes a while for those things to trickle down. It's like, um, I often talk about Adele Diamond's rat play study and how she, for anybody who's not familiar with it, um, she did a study in the 80s and she was basically playing with rats. She was studying the effect of play on brain growth in rats. Um, but she was a female scientist in the 80s in the United States. And she was getting made fun of for being the girl that plays with rats. So when she wrote her paper about the effect of play on rats and their brain growth, she changed the word play for engagement. And that study came out in the very early 90s, very late 80s. And the effect that that one study had on our parenting is astronomical. She could not have predicted because nobody's heard of this study. When I talk about it, I get blank yeah. stares. But everybody knows that you need to be engaged with your child in order for them to not be stupid. Yeah. That comes directly from that study of if you in play with your child, if your child is engaged in play, more play, they will physically have a stronger brain. Yeah. But because she switched it out for play for engagement, it got turned into this if I'm not constantly personally one-to-one -one engaging with my child if they are not constantly being stimulated they're going to be dumb and that's not what this study was saying at no all. And, and I think that's the thing isn't it it's, it's again it's it's putting an expectation and an assumed knowledge onto parents yeah exactly. um, so engagement in play can be the child and and I think it's also um it it connects into the Montessori side of things as well. It's that children need the autonomy. Yeah. So engagement can be, for want of a better word, one-sided. Yeah. Me talking to my child is engaging with him. Yes. But I'm not necessarily encouraging him. To engage. <laughs> and that's Montessori you mentioned. It, that This comes up, this whole, you know, what are we basing our child development off of? Um, it comes up with Montessori a lot because Montessori is a program from the 1800s and is often being brought into a like current context without lots of, I don't know if this is the case in Europe as it is here, but because Montessori is an unregulated thing in North America, um, it's often being very blindly followed with no critical thinking about what did she get right and she did she got a lot right she was a woman but ahead of her time there's no question about that she also got a lot wrong <laughs> and which 
is only to be expected given the historical context. So it's one of these things where like when we're looking at programs like Montessori, like Reggio Emilia, we want to be looking at them critically given our current information because blindly wholesale, yeah, she got a lot right. And there, she has a lot of really fantastic ideas. She also had some that have been roundly disproven and that we need to just- well, I think. I think one of the key things for me, one of the problems I've always had with Montessori in the modern world is the toys that are sold as Montessori toys that are just wooden versions of plastic toys. And okay, so wood has a different tactile to it, but that in itself, a toy is not Montessori or not Montessori. In fact, actually you are far better just giving them a load of your kitchen utensils than buying specific toys. So <laughs> the, the, the kind of, again, I, I guess it's kind of a social media thing as well, because most, a lot of what you, what you see as Montessori now is the curated Montessori. It's the, yes. the people who have these, and I, like you can't actually see because my background is blurred out <laughs> because it is mess everywhere. <laughs> I've already said ADHD is definitely not, a friend of a, a tidy house um but, but yes we, we we don't have a tidy house here um but the you see these people who's got who've got playrooms where they've got one cupboard or one shelf that's got like 10 toys on it and that's it and 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 you just think um is that real <laughs> And half the time it's probably not you probably turn the camera around and the back yeah. back is just <laughs> But that's what is being perpetrated as being Montessori. And then it's got things like, and it's the beautiful toys like Grimm's Rainbows and stuff, which yes, have many, many, many ways to play with them. And they are beautiful toys, but they themselves are not Montessori. No, and that's the problem where the, the aesthetic has been divorced from the philosophy and the philosophy. And I understand why, like I understand the whole Montessori dictating that her program can never be altered, blah, blah, blah. Um, but I think it's time that we take a really critical look at what the actual philosophy behind Montessori, what the goals of Montessori were and what the current research is and marrying those two together. Because <laughs> She had a lot of really cool ideas that have absolutely yeah. been validated, but parts of it just need to, need to go in the bin. <laughs> to, yeah. And I think if we don't look at things critically across the board, we're, we're at risk of falling into the same trap that we have for the last hundreds of hundreds of years because we just go, oh, Montessori is the way to go. And then everybody goes, well, they, they either go down Montessori or Gina Ford. And then you've got your basic, your two types of parents. You're either a Gina Ford or you're a Montessori parent. And it's like, well, Hang on, what if well, I'm, and that's what if particularly I'm a bit dangerous. Like, yeah, <laughs> in North America, where Montessori, when I talk to parents and they're like, well, we're thinking of sending them to a Montessori school. And I'm like, okay, so the first thing you need to verify is that it is actually a Montessori school and that they haven't just slapped the word Montessori on their name and typed the prices. Because in North America, the word Montessori is not regulated in any way, shape or form. And I cannot tell you, especially when I was in my early intervention days and I was with different kids in different daycares and preschools all the live long week, how many 
childcare settings I walked into that had a big sign that said Montessori over the door. And I'd walk in and there was not a single Montessori philosophy being implemented in that program. It was very 80s themed months, like very, and we all went to that style of, <laughs> of early childhood and education when, you know, 80s babies. Um, but it was very like old school, very stereotypical childcare center. And I'm like, what about this program is Montessori? None of it. They just, it became a trend. Mm. And parents don't understand the philosophy behind the trend. So, but they heard that Montessori is a good thing. So they're willing to shell out an extra $300 a month for that title. And that's again, where having parents be educated and understand that, you know, okay, this is what, these are the basic philosophies of Montessori. This is how to tell if that's actually a thing in your childcare environment. So that one, you're not getting taken for a ride financially, but two, your child's being taught what you think they're being taught. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say that's quite a key thing like I remember looking so Montessori nurseries aren't as common here um I don't think we've got any local to me at all um but the nursery that we used um you and I remember them saying we use some Montessori principles they didn't say they were a Montessori nursery they used some principles and it was it was predominantly when they were talking about it because of what I do know it was predom predominantly around growing autonomy and the the children having especially once they were a little bit older so like two plus they had they had a room they could sleep in and they were serving themselves food and things yeah. like that and they were able to go and take themselves off to the room for when they wanted a nap and they were able to go and pick a book up and those principles of autonomy rather than schedule mm -hmm. um, and being involved in the process were one of the things that helped us to pick that nursery. I will be honest, one of the others was the fact they were one of the, the, the nurseries local to me that was trained in using slings. And my slingy baby needed that for transition. He didn't need it long-term, but he needed it for the transition of starting nursery. And he was carried basically pretty much every day from three days old. And so oh, for him- That was more standard in North America. I'm a baby bearing <laughs> educator as well. So I, yeah. and it's, it's a things like, especially like in Alberta, which oddly enough is very crunchy. Um, baby wearing is super common out there, but you would never see it in a childcare setting. Yeah, we are, inc I am incredibly, so it, it's becoming more and more common. I'm a baby wearing educator as well. Um, and we're very lucky where I live. So I live in Sheffield or on the outskirts, I live near Sheffield and we have one of the world's, yeah, we have lots of sling libraries. We have, at one point we had, I think seven different sling libraries I could get to within an hour. Wow, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and we have, um, so one of the sling companies um, did like a poll on the country of where people lived and Sheffield was like the centre of baby wearing in the UK um, and my listeners are probably bored of me saying but one of the, because like, I used to volunteer, well I still volunteer with, with one library but one of the libraries I used to volunteer with is with Rosie Knowles who wrote um, the amazing why baby wearing matters um so i'm I've, I've got that resource on my doorstep and um so 
her and a couple of her team have had put together training specifically for nurseries and the nursery that I picked I picked we felt it you can walk into a nursery and feel the difference so we we looked at we only looked at two and one of them was um it was a new build it had only been open a year brand new beautiful building they had this massive soft play with a beautiful slide in it and everything it was this massive open plan room for each each group and it was like on paper the most amazing nursery they had uh, cameras so you could check in on your kid at any time um, and we went there first and then we went to this this other nursery which was in an old probably an old Victorian building actually um we've got a lot of those around us um but it was in an old building um I think it used to be a care home for a while it had been been all sorts of things and each each group each different age group had three rooms not one room it was very much small rooms um and I remember we brought we he was due to start when he turned one but I think he was about nine months old when we oh in fact younger than that when we went to look around because the nursery um yeah the wait list places are yeah um are quite hard to get so he was maybe seven months old and they were like oh well this is the room we normally start them in um when they're about one but they don't necessarily spend long in here but basically they're in here until they're walking confidently and I was like well he's cruising now She's like, oh, he might never be in this room then. But it was just a room that just had like little kitchens and so stuff that they could cruise around the outside of the room. But yeah. it was all just free play. And they they said they set stuff up in the morning. And if they wanted to, if they didn't want to play with that, they didn't have to. There was always, they always knew how to get the toys out. And it just felt right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's, there's no... And that's what I tell parents all the time when you're choosing a daycare, when you're choosing a nursery, trust your gut because mm. your gut is picking up on cues that you may not be. And often that cue is the resonance of the caregivers in the room and their happiness, their satisfaction with their job, their, how, their attitude towards their job. Um, because I've been probably in the 10 years that I was an early interventionist, I probably went into over 500 different care settings with various kids. And some of the things that I saw when the parents were in the room versus when the parents left would horrify you. These really good, well reputation. I got a reputation when I was working um, for an agency. I got a reputation for reporting childcare centers because the second the parents walked out of the room, the entire energy would change. And often when I would come to the parents with that information, they would be like, we felt something was off for months, but they didn't know what, so they didn't take any action. And it wasn't until I, who didn't work for the center, but was in the center to work with a specific child, was there to observe that I got to see the mommy and daddy are gone side of things. And I mean, a lot of people, they're very good at talking the talk, but if your gut is saying something's wrong, chances are something's wrong. And you need to follow that. Yeah, that's definitely something that I think is true throughout whatever part of your parenting journey you're on. If your gut is telling you something is wrong with a situation, it probably is. And you probably need to get 
second opinions or something support from someone <laughs> because it's just I think we we shout down our intuition we've been we've been brought up in this world um where we've been gaslighted yeah as mothers we've been gaslighted I think especially when you look at um when you look at the way that parenting is portrayed on 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 films and things it's either there's a baby born because it makes the story work and then they're born and then they just disappear out of the story um much like Ben in Friends who just like yeah you've got this child that you supposedly co-parent but you never see um and and once they're no fun anymore they're gone or you have it where it's overreactive mothers or oh they've got a temperature so we have to take them to the hospital and you know like it's always overreactive it's always and it's always the mother yeah (laughs) yeah and it's it makes it does it makes parents feel like things are wrong when they aren't but it also makes parents think that when things are wrong they aren't like it goes both ways because I've had parents where you know something immediately when they start talking to me I'm like there's something going on in this situation for this 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 and this reason and they're like oh and they will come up with excuses for each of those and I'm like okay that might be the case but in my experience (laughs) these four red flags together are a problem and it sometimes takes a few months but almost universally they come back and they're like you were right you called it from the moment that we spoke and again it's that knowledge right when and it's again this isn't to shit on parents because we can't all have degrees in child development we can't all have had that experience in you know 500 different care settings um but I also think that's why it's really important for parents to consult when they don't feel like they have a firm grasp of what's going on because it's not your zone of genius it is mine (laughs) And when I, and that's why I love working with parents because I can then empower parents. Okay. This is how we're going to approach the situation. These are the questions to ask. This is what to look for. These are the red flags and then let them make their own decision. Let them go and investigate that by themselves because I might be wrong. I'm just hearing it from a parent secondhand, but again, my intuition is strong too. So it's right it's that whole philosophy and this is where like um you know they say it takes a village to raise a child that's not just physically where you know sharing the labor the physical labor of child rearing is it's also mentally and different people have different strengths and know different things we're not supposed to be omniscient parents no exactly I i think we we've come to a point where work has become the work and attaining all the money have become the the priority of life and then governments instead of raising the next generation of children raising the next generation of geniuses and we've left people behind with that yeah. And then we that achievement he lost, right? With the yeah. you gotta be the yeah. Elon Musk of the world. Yeah. And and then by leaving those people behind, 
we've we've kind of come up come to this society where we're so disconnected from each other that those people that were left behind who were geniuses in a field never find their field because they were only given such a narrow way of finding a field and I always liken it to music so one of my very strange jobs that I've done I've had a few strange jobs was I was a music center manager so I worked for a local music service and I ran the um out of school program so I did things like organizing concerts and working with parents and connecting parents and teachers and doing timetabling and stuff like that one of the events we used to do um, a couple of times a, a year we do come and try events so the idea of those was that anybody well kids any kids could come and they could try any of our instruments and we'd have experts on hand to try them all and I always say so I I play a brass instrument and I started when I was nine and I started it because I wanted to learn piano and the piano teacher didn't have any space but she had some space in her brass band so we started then I am a natural brass musician if you'd given me a flute at nine I wouldn't be playing it now and the advantage of those try any instrument sessions is that you get a bunch of people in a room who may have some preconception of what they think they should be doing. And A, you could, you could tell what people were going to do. It's like you say, you could like look at them and go, you're going to be this, you're going to be that. And 90% and of the time you'd be right. But if you didn't give them the opportunity to try all of those instruments, how would they find their zone of genius? How would they find their, their instrument? Well, and that approach is something parents need to take into like all extracurricular activities. I've right now, because our school year was winding down and therefore extracurricular activities from the school year are winding down. I've had a lot of parents panicking because they're like, you know, little Timmy doesn't want to practice soccer. He doesn't want to practice his soccer skills. I'm like, little, little Timmy's four. Um, and I can tell you right now that the number of kids who start playing soccer at four years old and go on to make soccer or football, as y'all call it, their like lifelong career dream. The point probably slightly um, more in this country than in the States, though. Yeah, well, exactly. But the the idea of extracurriculars for young kids is not to find their occupation. Yeah. The idea of extracurriculars for children is to expose them to a wide variety of communities and activities and pastimes so that they find something that they enjoy with people they connect with and that they can use as a recreational re uh, regulation activity going forward. But that means that they're going to try a lot of shit that they don't like. Also, I have another reason that we do extracurriculars with our kids, and that's to wear them out, because we need to sleep. <laughs> right? To actually physically expend that energy. I say that my, when we, everything locked down here in, um, right after Christmas break, we had a lockdown in Ontario from the end of Christmas until about the first week of February. And my son, he's eight, and he swims competitively. And those six weeks, seven weeks, where he wasn't able to access a swimming pool, 
I was ready to throw them off into the frozen frigid lake. Like we lived two kilometers from the Ottawa River. And I was like, I am going to throw you in that river and make you swim just because I cannot stand you when you haven't had that opportunity to get that proprioceptive input that you obviously crave and receive in abundance from swimming three times a week. And I, I think that's the thing that we we miss. So one of the pieces of advice for one, I don't like using the word advice, but one of the pieces of advice on, on, on one section of one of our workshops is if you have a kid that has a high proprioceptive need, then get them signed up for gymnastics or football or martial arts or whatever it is so that they get to use that that energy to do that thing because you don't want to be in soft play every single day all day and it gives right and I say this with parents who have difficulty with a kiddo who's a hitter and like their response to every situation is to smack something I'm like okay so your child is showing you that in order to regulate they need the proprioceptive input in their arms so can we get the kids swimming can we get them a punching bag? Can we provide them with more opportunities to receive that proprioceptive input so that when they snap, when they're low on energy, their first response is not to go seeking it. And parents will go, well, but I don't want him to be punching a punching bag. I don't want him to hit anything. And I'm like, but adults do this. How many of us have a, a membership to a gym and we go and we kickbox multiple times a week? It's just that as adults, our regulation cycle is much longer than a child's and therefore they need it more frequently. (laughs) Yeah. Right. And that skill evolves because like, again, using my eight-year-old as an example, he's a swimmer. He's also a runner. And so we live in Canada. Swimming pools are not available to us unless they're indoors like eight months out of the year um, because it's deep freeze. So, but he can run. And he has run in minus 20, minus 30 degrees Celsius. And because he needs that proprioceptive input. And again, he's young. So his regulation cycle is fairly short. So he's often needs like 5K twice a day. And that's okay. As long as we teach our kids those skills. (laughs) Yeah. And I think, I mean, the the proprioceptive need is probably one of the most misunderstood anyway. Mm -hmm. And it's especially with the neurodiverse brain, it's often one of the ones that we struggle with. Um, Actually, it's not necessarily that we don't have those needs. It's that we don't, we're not very good at interpreting them. Yeah. Where our interoception is tends to be, I have ADHD as well. Um, Yeah. Our interoception tends to be slightly dulled. (laughs) Yeah. And, and so we, we kind of, when in, in that sense, more likely to lash out because you don't understand that that's what your body needs. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, that's why I'm always saying to parents, we need to schedule this in. It needs to be something that time is blocked off for and is intentionally engaged with for ourselves and for our kids, because otherwise we don't do it. And then we have issues like, um children here have been falling spontaneously falling out of chairs at school and this has become a thing where apparently children will just like they'll be sitting at their desk and they'll just out of their chair and like this is because they're not getting enough proprioceptive input 
their body is literally just like, nope, we're gonna receive this any way we can. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's the thing, isn't it? That we we assume and we've not talked about a big word um that comes up a lot in this area which is the manipulation word Mm. and we've not talked about that and that I think there's a big connection here because what old school parenting books would tell you is that that child falling out of a chair is manipulating you yes exactly they want something and this is how they're going to get it but it and And, it's not that's not wrong in the sense that their body does want proprioceptive input and it's going to get it like however it wants it's kind of like I've usually likened it to like childbirth where I don't know about over there but over here there's been this um, article going around about how some doctors aren't allowing women to push when they're in like giving birth okay well that's not really a thing because if you're having a baby even if you're not actively pushing your body's like "Mm, we're getting this kid out yeah (laughs) it's going to push (laughs) without your consent. And it's the same thing with sensory input. If you're not giving your body sensory input, your body is going to find it. Yes. Any means possible. And, and I think the thing is, like, I liken it as well to, um, we need to teach our children independence. Therefore, the toddler toddling through to your bedroom in the middle of the night to come and climb into your bed needs to be picked up and put back in their bed. But actually for me, and something that I talk about a lot is, that is that toddler showing independence. They are showing that they know their need. They need you. They are coming to you to meet their need. That, that's, it. that's the independence you wanted them to show. But now you're going to go and put them back in their bed where they, their needs aren't going to be met. And well, probably that, you're going to spend half an hour settling them back down again instead of just letting them in and going back to sleep. That translates into so many places I have a client who recently got written up at school for standing up and taking off their sweatshirt out of out of turn and when mom was like I I don't understand he was hot and he took his shirt off and that like he was wearing a t-shirt underneath he wasn't (laughs) exposing himself he was just taking his shirt off and they were like well he needs he needs to follow the rules. And she's like, your rule specifically contravenes your goal, which is for the child to engage in learning. And if the child is not comfortable, then their brain is going to prioritize their comfort over their knowledge because comfort is a base need and knowledge is a nice to have. Mm. And this concept, so as you, going back to you saying like this idea of manipulation and that the child is trying to get something they want versus something they need. And how that difference, which sounds like it's the same thing and most people will conflate the two, are very different. And that kind of, you know, you know Maslow before they bloom, <laughs> where you have to meet those base needs before you can get to the nice to haves. <laughs> and, that understanding of what is a need and what is a nice to have is, and that's usually where I start with my clients where, cause they'll, again, they'll be like, well, they're manipulating me because they want this. Why do they want that? 
Let's mm -hmm. go a layer deeper. Why do they want that? Well, they want it because they're hungry. Okay, so hunger is a base need. If you're hungry, your brain is literally going, we're gonna die. I yeah. need nutrients. <laughs> and therefore everything else, no matter how much you know that other things are important, everything else pales in comparison to your brain thinking you're gonna just keel over at any moment. And it's the same with like toileting. Parents are like, well, yes. when I start toilet training, my child's behavior goes into the crapper. And it's like, well, yeah, because <laughs> toileting is a much more base need than all the other nice to haves. And right now you're changing how that process works for them. So it's taking up a lot of energy and a, mentally and physically. So of course their behavior in other areas is going to go down. And that knowledge of what the hierarchy actually is, like, you know, Maslow and Bloom, those are all nice, but most parents don't have an actual understanding of what that looks like in front of them in their toddler. Yeah, we, we talk about it as a wheel of needs, which I really like. And we also talk about it in, and especially, it's even more important with uh, neurodiverse children, potentially, um, in that we all have a different amount of each need that we have. Mm -hmm. So for some people, and it's particularly common, um, the, the proprioception, as you say, is a particularly common one to have a really high need or the need for autonomy is mm -hmm. really high in certain neurodivergent children. Um, oh, what is it? Avoidance. Um, I can't remember the, the name for the specific type of autism, but basically if you if they hear the word no, they will automatically shut down. Pathological demand avoidance. Yes, that's the one. Um, and that, that is basically a massive need for autonomy. And if you haven't, if you if you stifle their autonomy, they they act out because they're not getting the basic for them what is an actual fundamental need because that for them is more important than many of the other needs and I think that's the thing we just we're so ingrained in Maslow being it being this hierarchy but that was a hierarchy for like one type of person not necessarily everyone. Dr. Shanker uses the analogy of a backpack and how every yeah. person has a knapsack and it different people have different things in it and the weight of those different things is different. So one child may have the exact same looking knapsack as another child, but inside of it, one kid has a brick and the other kid has a light ball. And therefore those children, even though on the surface, they look identical, are going to be able to do very different things because one child has a much heavier backpack than the other. They're going to be able to walk different distances before getting tired they're going to, you know, be able to climb higher the one with the ball versus the one with the brick. So yeah, it's looking at, and that's what I, what, when I say like, I love crawling into a child's brain and being like, what is going on with you? I, that's the part that I love where I'm like, okay, what are your needs? What is your, what's in your backpack? And how can we get you to where we want to get you? Where can we, how can we solve the problems that are cropping up given what's in your backpack? We're not taking the backpack off the kid and being yeah. like, run free. We're saying, okay, <laughs> you know, we've got this obstacle course ahead of us and you've got like 
a couple of bricks and a really heavy textbook and a medicine ball in your backpack, how are we going to successfully get you through this obstacle course with, while still having that backpack on? Yeah, because some of the because one of the problems with the parenting um, Instagram following type parenting now is there is so many different schools of parenting for want of a better word and there is yeah. there is some that are literally trying to take the backpack off their child and yeah. they're trying to give their child the easiest possible path through that obstacle or they're trying to take the obstacles out completely and flatten it but then the child so if you if you liken it to so in in this country the SAS so are kind of elite forces they go mm-hmm. training with like huge backpacks on and they, they get like loosened off in the whales in the middle of nowhere and they have to do these assault courses and these missions and everything with these huge packs on their back. And part of it is because you're building up strength and you're building up the endurance to be able to do those things in life. And so if you take all those obstacles out or if you take that backpack off for a child through the early years, yeah. when they then get to 20 and they're out there on their own at college or in work, they they get a tiny obstacle and they, you don't know and how to deal with it can't deal with it so it, and that's the thing about parenting that it's finding the balance between the days that maybe maybe someday you might need to hold your hold a backpack for your child but you're never taking it away from them exactly you might have an obstacle that you you might one day have to take away from them because it's too much but then over time you'll gradually give them that back yeah but if you do do it all in too much or if you go down like the extremes of it's like everything the extremes are never the never (laughs) never a good place to be sitting in (laughs) so i'm gonna have to wrap it up now because i think we've already been on for an hour so this is definitely going to be one of the longer episodes um i just have a couple of last couple of questions for you so the first one which is either a really easy question or a really hard question is if you were talking to a new parent or an expectant parent what one piece of advice would you give them oh oh that is a hard one um my usual one is get to know your child before you start teaching them anything like be really curious about your kid and I think that's as you said there's a there's that Victorian kind of idea of molding a child, that kind of tabula rasa where they're a blank slate and we're going to give them these experiences that build them into the person I want them to be. That's not how it works. Um, cool theory, didn't pan out. <laughs> um, right, it's approach your child like a stranger from the very beginning. And you're kind of, you've got 18 years to get to know this person and to guide this person through the challenges, but without, it's never about molding them into what you want. It's about getting to know who they are and helping them be the best version of that person. And if you can go into everything with that perspective, then parenting gets a lot easier because when your child is having challenges or you're having challenges with your child, then the perspective is, what don't I know about you? What am I missing in this situation to understand what is going on instead of I am going to forcibly 
change you to meet my needs. I love that. Thank you. And then the last question, this is the easiest question on any podcast ever. How can we follow you? How can we find you on social media? I will drop all of this into the show notes. I'll also see if I can find a couple of articles that um, talk about some of the um, kind of more technical things that we've talked about. So I'll put something linking to Maslow in there and things like that. Um, So if you've been listening along and going, I don't know what they're talking about, trying brain, things like that, which I love and and. If you come on my workshops, you will talk about all of those things. Um, And I'm sure the same with Alana. But how can we find you and follow you? Absolutely. So I'm on Instagram at Parenting Posse. Um, We say it used to take a village. Now it takes a posse. And um, on Facebook, we also have a parenting group called the Parenting Posse with Alana Robinson. We have over 10,000 parents in there to kind of collaborate and peer support each other through all of these challenges. Um, and then online, you can find me at alanarobinson.com and I have a free workshop there if anyone would like to, as you said, learn more about what exactly is we're talking about here. Fabulous. Thank you so much for coming on and chatting with me for over an hour. I hope you have a lovely rest of your day. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed that conversation. Don't forget check out all of the links in the show notes. I know there are loads today. I know it was a very geeky episode. Um, I'd love to hear if you want any of those particular um, topics that we talked about today discussed maybe in a future episode and I'll see if I can get a guest to come back. Maybe one of the guests we've had this season. We are getting close to wrapping this season up as I break for the summer um, and the same goes for my courses and workshops. I will be having a uh, substantial break over the summer so that I can make the most of being a parent myself while Benjamin is on his school holidays. So do check those courses workshops out and don't forget I do offer one to one sessions as well and you can book those direct through the website or by dropping me an email or a message so please do stay in touch and don't forget we've got the facebook group keep calm and educate which will not be having a summer break so there will be constant information and updates on there as well and don't forget to like subscribe and i would absolutely love if you could give us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts we'll see you next week